Well, when I was in high school, I had, I had a great, <coughs> sorry, excuse me. I had a great youth pastor. I had a great youth pastor. His name was Cameron, and he was just great. Like, he, he encouraged me, and he loved me, and he even had, like, and this is a little bit corny, but he had, he had this phrase that he would use to, like, constantly encourage me, and it would be in all sorts of arenas, and a lot of times it was for comical effect, but he would just, he would just say, bring it, aunt. Like, that was kind of, he would just constantly, like, I'd be doing something, like, putting chairs away, bring it, aunt. Like, he would just be encouraging me in all these kinds of ways, and and when I think about Cameron and my relationship with Cameron, right out the gates, tears. Sorry, uh, not sorry. But when I think about him and I think about my life in high school, I'm not sure what kind of person I would have turned out to be without Cameron. I think without Cameron, there's all sorts of parts of me that would not have been secure. I think without Cameron, my picture of Jesus and Christianity and church, I think it would have been a sadder picture. I think it would have been a messed up picture. I think I would not have really seen Jesus as clearly as I could have been seeing him without Cameron. And Cameron, he, he had this incredible ability to love me through all sorts of angst. So if you think I'm angsty now at 35, imagine me at 15, okay? So um, I, he had this ability to just like... Uh, just love me through my angst. In fact, a year or two ago, I think I happened to be going through some of my old emails with him, and I was reading just how angsty I was about something with him. I was probably right, but I was just so angsty about something with him, and he was just so gentle and kind, and still not just um, not dismissive, but not just agreeable with everything that I was saying. It was, um, yeah, he had this ability to like absorb my angst. And yet, through that, he was still encouraging me all the time in all kinds of ways. Like, he was seeing all of these, like, good things in me and pointing them out and cheering me on in all kinds of ways. And so, I, just parents of the room, like, your teens really need people like that in their life that can see the good in them and continue to cheer them on. And yet, even though Cameron had all of this, really, this, the kind of stuff we all love as humans, being, like, encouraged and cheered on and, and just love and kindness and all this kind of stuff, he still... He corrected me a lot. Like he, he corrected me in a lot of times when I, in the ways that I needed correction. Like he would often correct me, uh, especially my perspectives on things. I'd be viewing something a certain way or doing something a certain way or th- have a certain idea about something. And he would kind of just like gently come alongside and just say, have you thought about it from this angle? <laughs> Have you, have you thought about it from this way of Jesus? Like, do you think that, you're, that that way you're viewing it is the way that Jesus would view it? And so, so often, even though he would encourage me, on the flip side of things, he would correct me, help me see where my perspectives were wrong, and help me see where I could have a better, more Christ-like perspective. And I, I honestly, as a pastor even today, I often find myself with different college students that go to our church saying some of the things that he used to say to me and kind of laughing. <laughs> like, kind of going like, oh man, this is, this is like, I don't know, like parenting that's been passed, good parenting that's been passed out, spiritual parenting, I guess. Um, and so that, that was Cameron, who was my youth pastor, full of encouragement, full of good correction, good helping me understand perspective. And, and the reason I bring Cameron up today is because Cameron reminds me of the passage that we're in today. Like what the, the verses that we're going to be in today reminds me of what Cameron used to do with me all of the time. 
And so if you're new here, we're in the book of 1 John. We typically go through books of the Bible or sections of the Bible for our series. And right now we're in this letter of 1 John that went out to these different churches that were connected to John and his teachings. And even there was probably this Johannian school that kind of helped uh, like a literal, almost like institution that kind of promoted the gospel of John and taught with this kind of lens uh, about who Jesus is and discipled people that way. And so this letter is going out to these different churches where these different issues are in. And so today, we're in 1 John, we're in chapter 2, and we're going to be in verses 12 through 17. And verses 12 through 17 just remind me of Cameron. Because In the first few verses, 12 through 14, we're going to see John just encourage the churches he's talking to. Say all these good words of encouragement that Donna just read for us. And then in verses 14 through 17, we're going to see John change pace a little bit and begin to warn the church about some things that probably he sees them falling into. Probably some perspectives he sees them having. And so there's a bit of correction, a bit of warning there. And so today, here's how the sermon's going to go. First part of the sermon is going to be this encouragement in verses 12 through 14. Second part of the sermon, or if I'm saying that right, 15 through 17, will be this warning uh, that John gives about the world. And so what I hope to do is, kind of just read those and then translate those same things to us uh, today. So let's just hop into it by first looking at this encouragement uh, in 1 John chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 12, okay? Verse 12 of chapter 2. If you're new to church, the Bible's in two parts. The, the second part is all about Jesus and every, everything that his followers did after Jesus. And these are writings from his followers talking about him. And First John's near the end of, of the Bible. And if you ever need a Bible, we have Bibles out there. You can always have one for free. Um, so here's what verse 12 says. I'm writing to you, little children, since your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have conquered the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you have come to know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you're strong. God's word remains in you, and you have conquered the evil one. So right away, as we see this, these verses of encouragement that John is giving to the any of the churches that would be listening to this, hearing this letter, some think this letter was even more of a performance, like an oral performance that different people would go around and do for the churches. And, and they wrote it down too. But right away what we have to address is like, uh, who is John talking to in this little section of encouragement? It, this, this section is actually, when you read uh, scholars on this letter of 1 John, uh, this little section that I just read, it's actually confusing for scholars. Uh, Because they're like, who is he addressing? Because some think, okay, he's addressing children literally, and then young men literally, and then fathers literally. Like that's uh, that's what a lot of or a good amount of scholars think, and and that could be the case. That could be totally what's going on here. For some reason, John wants to talk to children, young men, and fathers in some specific ways right here in the letter. But uh, 
I would kind of actually have more of the view, and a lot of scholars have this view as well, that this is more of like a rhetorical device, a more of like a mnemonic device, especially if this was a performance. This would be a great way for people to memorize what John wanted them to say to the other churches in their area. And so rather than uh, the children, young men, and fathers uh, talking literally to those groups, it's probably more of a metaphor talking to the whole church and different stages and phases in their life as a church. So, so I think you can read this section and you can he, both men and women can hear it. And I think that he might, though, be specifically trying to talk at moments to the whole church, at moments to those newer and growing in their faith, and, and at moments talking to those who have, are mature in their faith and been following Jesus uh, for a long time. So to translate it really quick, those different phrases... I read little children uh, as all Christians, and the reason I read little children, that phrase little children, as to being to all Christians is because Jesus, in John chapter 13, I think it's verse 33, as he's at the Last Supper with a bunch of young men disciples who had been following him for the three years at that point, he calls them little children. And so even there, there's this precedent where John was in the room with Jesus when Jesus calls him and his guy friends little children, and often this phrase little children Jesus is using to talk to the whole church. So when, when this is being used here in First John, I think little children means all Christians. Now what's interesting is children is followed up there, but it's without the little. And so I kind of think he might be talking to newer Christians when he says children there. It could be the same thing. It could be to all, all Christians. When he's talking to fathers, I think he's talking to those older in their faith, more mature in their Christian faith. And then when, when he's saying young men there, I think he's talking to anyone that's maturing in their faith, men and women, to be clear, not just uh, male. And so I love actually how the message puts it. Eugene Peterson, he's been one of my favorite authors the last number of years, and I love the message paraphrase and translation, as he would call it, both of those things. Uh, I'm going to read it. It will be on the screen. But this is how he puts those same verses. He says, I remind you... My dear children, your sins are forgiven in Jesus' name. You veterans were in on the ground floor and know the one who started all this. You newcomers have won a big victory over the evil one. And a second reminder, dear children, you know the Father from personal experience. You veterans know the one who started it all. And you newcomers, such vitality and strength. God's word is so steady in you. Your fellowship with God enables you to gain a victory over the evil one. So, I think in this section that we just read in one translation and the next translation, I think what John is trying to do is encourage the whole church. I think he's taking some intentional time to encourage the whole church. Because here's what's going to happen in the rest of the letter, and we're going to see it. John is going to have all sorts of exhortations and warnings and commands about things to stay away from. There's something like 12 uh, exhortations after this point in the letter. And so John, I think, wants to encourage them with their true identity in Christ, truly what God has done in them. Because sometimes when you begin to warn Christians about what they're doing, it sounds really like a work-based faith. And so I think right at the front, John is like, I got to remind them that I believe all this about them, that this is true about all of them, and we live out of that identity. And that's how we live out these commands. We don't live out these commands to get to Jesus. We live out these commands because Jesus got to us. 
And he wants to remind them that, about that on the front end. And so, uh, so I, I, don't, I don't think, I, don't, I personally, I don't think he's like buttering them up. I think he really is trying to build a strong identity in these churches that they have in Christ. And so, so he gives these different encouragements to these different phases in people's Christian walks or, or to the whole church. And a lot of these things he says in the, that section, actually, he says in other places in the same letter to the whole church. So that's another great reason to believe that these are, that this is to everybody in the church. And so there's at least three strong encouragements he gives here that I, I want to translate to this room today. Like, I want to just basically restate what he's saying, but I want to say it to this room today. Because if God's word was written back then to encourage that group of people, I think it's probably written to us today to help encourage us as well. And so the three quick encouragements from this that, that I, again, I want to translate to this room. The first encouragement that John gives here is, he says, your sins have been forgiven. Your sins have been forgiven. That seems to be really important to John to get across here. I actually think this idea of God forgiving our sins, it seems to be something that God wants to remind our church of in recent months. Like the series that we've been in, in Romans 8, now 1 John, it seems like God has wanted to bring up to us through these books, of the, these, this chapter in Romans and then this book of the Bible, it seems he wants to remind us that he's forgiven us. That our sins have been forgiven. There's something, like whenever we have a, a unifying theme that we didn't try to, to manufacture as a church, it just happens to keep popping up in these books that we're in, I kind of go, I think the Spirit might be trying to say something. Church, your sins are forgiven. I think every human feels guilt or shame. It's kind of like an automatic human response. I've seen it in my really little kids. I've, see, I've seen it in myself. Like we all have guilt and shame in us. Some of us have that guilt and shame because it's been forced on us uh, by maybe the religious elite, but I also think the societal elite. Like, it feels like the religious elite forced shame and guilt and dogma on us in all sorts of ways, but then I think the societal elite also forced shame and guilt and dogma on us in all sorts of ways. Like, both of those groups often are telling us things like saying, like, you're just not measuring up. You're not enough. You're not doing good enough. You're not righteous enough. You're not whatever enough. And when we get those kinds of messages, either from the religious elite or the societal elite, you begin to just feel guilt and shame and heaviness. But I also feel a lot of us feel guilt and shame because it comes from a true place of understanding like we're not perfect. Like a true place of understanding that, that we have sinned, that we've messed up, that we've done destructive things in, in all kinds of ways, whether it's relationally or how we, how we even just like steward and be responsible of our own lives. And when we can like honestly look in the mirror and, and say like, it's me, I'm the problem, like we begin to also feel guilt and shame because of that too. And so I think probably everybody in the room, if they're going to be honest with themselves and they haven't been to a Tony Robbins conference, they probably all feel some level of guilt and shame. And I think what God would say to this room is, your sins have been forgiven. Your sins have been forgiven. If you think that you have a debt to pay for your sins, you don't because Jesus paid the debt. If you think that you have to make it up to God, 
you don't because Jesus has already made it up to him. So that guilt and that shame, Jesus has done a work to cover it. So when we hear this phrase that your sins have been forgiven, it's a powerful, powerful, powerful phrase because it means that overwhelming guilt and shame that a lot of us walk around with, that a lot of us let determine how we live life, Jesus would say, no, your sins are forgiven. So you don't have to let that determine how you live your life. You can let Jesus and his righteousness and what he's done determine how we live life. And again, that's not to say that when, when we sin, when we mess up, uh, that we don't actively repent or repair or reconcile in the ways that we need to. We actually do as Christians, but the beautiful thing about being a Christian knowing that our sins are forgiven is that when we repair and reconcile and repent and change because we see sin in us, we're doing it from a place of complete security and the love of God. Not from a place of trying to earn your way back to God. Not from a place of trying to work off your debts uh, or make sure God is okay with you. You're doing it from a place where your sins have been forgiven already. Where you're completely secure in him. Think about that. Think about that. Like when someone attacks you and you feel defensive, what if you felt completely secure in in their love? Wouldn't that change how you repair and deal with your defensiveness? I think that's what God does when he forgives our sins. He fundamentally changes us. He secures us to him. He secures us to the biggest, most beautiful love in the world. And so John's first encouragement to root their identity is your sins have been forgiven. Church, God's been wanting to say that to us a bunch of times. I'm not sure why, but I think it's maybe because we don't believe it. I think that is part of it. There is no earning or debts in the kingdom of God. All right? Okay, second encouragement. Uh, it's this. You guys actually know God. You guys actually know God. I can see why that encouragement was needed back then for them, but I, th- I can definitely see why it's needed for us who have grown up in this Western society. And in Western society, I don't mean the West of the of the U.S. Western society is like all of these kind of societies that formulated and came from like Greece and Rome, essentially. Uh, It's more complicated than that, but that's a good way to put it. And us in Western society today, we only truly believe in the things we can measure, the things we can touch, the things we can see, the things we can know with science or the scientific method. And so to have John say to that group of people and it put in God's word for us to read that we know God, I think that is very important for us to hear. Because the air we breathe is constantly saying, don't believe in it unless you can measure it. It is encouraging for us to hear in God's word one of his teachers saying to his people and to us millennia later, no, you really know God. You, I want to say this to you guys. You really know God. Even in those moments of doubt, even in those moments of scorn from your friends, even in those moments where you go, nah, that was just my own mind, my thoughts, that was just my, that was just my feeling I got because some chords were playing or what, like, like, whatever, maybe some of that's true, but I still think you really know God. You don't have to doubt your experience with him, knowing him. Like, you really know God, and that means something for your life, and that's okay that it means something for your life. 
And, and also, church, there are all sorts of ways to know God. There are all sorts of ways to know God. There could be these kind of crazy Pentecostal experiences, or there could be some opposite of that. And both ways can be ways to get to know God. I think God, because he's our Father, loves each of us uniquely because we are unique. And so I think we all get to know God in all kinds of different ways. I think there's some commonalities, like his word and prayer. But you guys really know God. I just want to say that. I just want to say that to a church and to myself who often doubts if I actually know God, if I'm just making this all up, whatever it is. An encouragement to you guys is you really know God. You actually know him. That's what John wants to say then. I think he wants to say it to us today. Don't let anybody steal that from you. You really know God. Okay, encouragement number three is essentially this. He says it in the letter, but I want to say it to you guys too. You guys are strong Christians, and you're really committed to God. You guys are strong Christians, and you're really committed to God. I really actually believe that about you guys. To even be committed to any local church family today, it's just more and more rare, especially when you live in Flagstaff and everything is beautiful outdoors on a Sunday morning. Uh, To be committed to love your neighbor the way that I see you guys committed to love your neighbor in all kinds of ways shows how committed you are to God. Like you guys are passionate when it comes to your literal neighbors. You're passionate about your coworkers. You're passionate about your classmates. You're passionate about the kiddos in the foster care system. You're passionate about kids in Guatemala. You're passionate about our various second Saturday partners. All of that to me shows how, how much vitality there is in your faith. I love that I, I, that I get to pastor a church where I'm like, if I say some stuff about how, what it means for us to be committed to Jesus and love our neighbor, our church is not going to say, oh, that's just Anthony again. Our church is going to say, amen, yes, let's figure this out. How can we love our neighbors more? And so I think you guys are really strong and committed to God and love your neighbors. But I also think there's this almost like um, spirit of strength in you guys. It's probably the Holy Spirit, but there's the spirit of strength in you guys uh, because, um, you know, this town can be, I know it's not for everybody, but this town can be a tough place for Christians to live in, especially when they compare it to what their life is like as a Christian in other cities and other states. A lot of times I hear how tough it is. I think this is part of why you, when you move to Flagstaff, you meet a lot of, let's call them eccentric uh, Christians. <laughs> and uh, and I, I hear a lot of stories from Christians here who, who work in the marketplace, so work outside of any kind of a religious job, Christian job, and how hard it is, how much they feel like their faith is under fire. I've even ex- experienced that a bit, being up here, working other jobs. And yet, you're still here. You're still part of the Church of Christ. Like you're still part of the family of God. You're still committed, even though you've got all kinds of different ideological arrows being, you know, what is it, shot, shot at you. I was going to say thrown, <laughs> shot at you. You're still here. God is doing work in you guys. Like you guys have a strong, vital faith, and it's not because of you. It's because God has done something in you. That's cool. Like when you come to church on a Sunday, you see all these people still coming. You could go, God is doing something here. God is doing something in all these people. 
You have a strong, vital faith. See that in yourself. Because right here we have in 1 John chapter 2, a pastor or a leader who wants to make sure that the churches saw that in themselves. So it would be good for us to see that in ourselves too. And I love that kind of strong throughout all of this encouragement here, John's, he keeps kind of saying these like little phrases like, and you have conquered the evil one. And your fellowship with God has shown how you've conquered the evil one. So not only is the encouragement all those three things I said, but there's this other encouragement that when you look in the mirror and you know that you've trusted in Jesus, you can see yourself as a sign of the defeat of Satan and all of the evil in the world. Like when you look in the mirror, when you see your brothers and sisters in Christ in this room, you can say that person is a sign that evil is not going to win. That this world is not going to end in more and more evil. That Jesus is going to return and make all things new. That is, I love that. I love the idea that our faith, the fact that we follow Jesus means evil is not winning. That's true for all of us. So, I hope you feel encouraged by that. That's kind of the encouragement of what John is getting at here. Now let's shift to verses 15 through 17 where where John's going to give a bit of a warning of of this phrase called the world that you'll see throughout the New Testament. I'm going to take a quick drink. So verse John, chapter 2, part 2 of the sermon. This sermon is kind of unfair because it's kind of two different sermons, and so I'm sorry. The the, the megachurch in me is like recoiling, like, one idea, one idea, Anthony. (laughs) Um, But as you know, I'll probably never pastor a megachurch, so that's great. And so... So verses 15 through 17 says this. Uh, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. Just to be clear, I wasn't bashing megachurches there. I think they're wonderful. (laughs) I just don't think I could lead one. Um, All right, so John begins to give this uh, long warning, or a few verse warning, to not love the world. So what does this mean? What does this idea of the world mean here? Like, don't love the earth? Like, that Captain Planet's going to be mad about that. Like, what what does this mean? That's a millennial reference. (laughs) Thank you, Curtis. And so... uh, I grew, up, I grew up around a lot of fundamentalist Christians. And so basically the world in fundamentalist Christianity that I grew up in meant like any art or movies or shows or music that was enjoyable. Like that's, that's what the world I think meant growing up. And it, it never meant like how we use our money or how we love our neighbor or how we treat like interesting. Anyways, before I get this turns into a therapy session, uh, let me, let's give a quick definition of how John is using this phrase, the world here, and what he means when he says the world in this, in this instance. And when you see it in similar ways used throughout the New Testament, I want to give a def- definition of how, what the world means in that way. And so here's what it means. When John uses the word the world here, he means the human-centered way of life influenced by the devil. And it is a way that is particularly anti-God. Okay, so I'm going to say it again. The human-centered way of life, influenced by the devil, and it's a way of life that is particularly anti-God. 
And so when John and other biblical authors use this word, the world, in this sense, because you'll see world used in different ways. Like sometimes people use world just to mean earth in the Bible. Sometimes in the Bible it just means the people on the earth. But when you see the world specifically used in this way as a warning not to love the things of this world or the world as kind of like a, almost like a bad guy, the biblical authors see the world in this sense as this system and power that operates and runs the world and causes humans to be in rebellion toward God, often in this kind of like herd mentality rebellion together. And it's much more like the system that Satan would create for us to live under and to operate under. And so when John is saying don't love the world, he's saying don't love that. He's not saying don't love the earth, don't love people in the world. He's saying don't love this anti-God power and system that just like herds the people of the earth into doing all sorts of evil and rebellion towards God. And so... uh, that's what they mean. And so I just think it's good for us to be clear in that because I grew up in a churches where it just felt like I was hearing everything about humans and everything about creation is bad, right? That's what I grew up hearing. And, so I, and often they use these warnings about the world as a way to back up that sort of idea. And so even though sin, I think, does permeate all of creation in some way and sin permeates us, Something we have to remember is so does God's image on us. So does the goodness of God in his creation. Even though there's sin permeating creation, that's the problem with creation, there's still a goodness in creation. And so there's the image of God on us still, and there's a goodness of God's creational goodness baked into creation still. There's so much good about humanity and about creation, even though sin permeates us. It's a tension. If you read the the Bible, you're going to see that tension. Sin is a huge problem. It's much bigger than we want it to be. And that's why my fundamentalist friends growing up were so focused on it. They were, the one way they were right, that's really hard for me to say, is that sin is a big issue, and us as humans don't want to see it as a big issue, but it is. But they, those fundamentalists that I grew up with, they, they applied this idea of the world so narrowly and legalistically instead of actually hearing the warning for what it was. And so don't do what they did, where all sorts of creational goods, they were like throwing out the window, all sorts of good things about people. They were saying, no, that, that person's a sinner and all these kinds of ways. We're all sinners. But they, were, they were just had this kind of legalistic, narrow view of what the world was, and it was just whatever they thought it was. And so don't live like them. Don't go out and burn your CDs, okay? We used to have these things called CDs, teens, and I'm just kidding. And they would make us burn them. I wish that was fake. That is a real thing that happened, guys, in the 80s and the 90s. Don't do what they did. Don't legalistically stop yourself from receiving creational goodness that God wants you to receive in your attempt to listen to this command that John is saying here. Okay? All that being said, even though there is a lot of good in humanity, a lot of good in God's creation that are gifts from him, there is clearly this worldly way of doing things that John is warning against. There is clearly this worldly way of doing things that I think humans throughout history have participated in. Right? Like, just look 
at how humans have run history. It's not great, right? It, if history has been violent, history has been bloody, it has been selfish, it has been colonizing, it has been prejudiced, it has been racist, it has been controlling, it has been manipulative, it's been atrocious. Anytime you study history, you just go, what are we doing? And I would say that's the world. That's the worldly way of doing things. History, unfortunately, you can very easily see has been run by this love of the world, operating in this anti-God system that, that really the devil loves. That's what John is warning us against loving. And so he fleshes out what the world is with these three different phrases. And so that's how I want to flesh out what the world is. So you're, you're going, okay, well, then what is the world? If it's not burning my CDs, Anthony, what is it? I have nothing left then. I don't know how to listen to this command. He uses these three phrases that I think fleshes that word out, uh, what the world is out well. And the three phrases are lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride in one's possessions is how the CSB puts it. But I think it actually could be better translated pride of life. A lot of uh, translations actually translate it pride of life. And, and just quickly on that, possessions, the word in Greek is actually life. But that word for life often has this connotation of the things that you have that sustain life. And so you can see why uh, CSB wanted to put possessions there. It's, it's, it's a little bit more complicated than just saying life. But I think pride of life gets at better what John's warning against. So we'll use that. So we're going to talk about lust of the flesh. We're going to talk about lust of the eyes. And we're going to talk about pride of life. Okay? I think defining each of these will help us understand what John is warning us not to love. Okay? So when John says lust of the flesh, he means just always giving in to whatever your body wants. That's what he means. He means the lust of the flesh is just always giving in to what your body wants. Almost like being more animal than human is what he's warning against. Right? I, I think we see it today with technology. We're constantly chasing dopamine hits on our screens constantly despite the damage it does in our relationships and how much time it wastes and all this kinds of stuff because we're, we're going animalistic. We're just giving in to what the chemicals in our brains want. Right? In, in, in our Romans 8 series, week 2 of the series, we talked at length about this idea of the flesh that's used throughout the Bible. And so I would say go back and listen to that if you can stomach it and, and you'll get a good thorough definition of this. But the, the lust of the flesh is this animalistic way of doing life, giving into your cravings, whatever your cravings are, whenever you have them. And so this, this lust of the flesh, it can range from eating whatever you want, whenever you want. It could be sleeping with whomever you want. It could be spending your money, money on whatever you want. It could be doing whatever you want to the earth to get whatever you want. It can really be all kinds of things. I know it could sound like it's just this sexual thing because that word lust is there, but that's not what John was trying to communicate. Sure, sexual things fall into that category easily, but it was really just this animalistic way of living. Like you can have lust of the flesh without ever doing anything sexual. That's what John is warning about. He says when you begin to participate in that way of life, it shows you love the world. Okay? Uh, the next way that John talks about the world is this phrase, lust of the eyes. Now again, I know you're going to be surprised here. He's probably not talking about sex here. Uh, 
the phrase to those listeners, and there's a consensus of scholarship on this. All the scholars that I read said that phrase, lust of the eyes, to those listeners would have meant something more about greediness and how greedy humans can be. So, so this lust of the eyes phrase, it's not so much talking about sexual lust as it's talking about this way of seeing whatever you want and making sure you do whatever it takes to get it. This lust of the eyes, I see something, I get it. I see something, I want it, I take it. This is what lust of the eyes is. And so, of course, that probably does include some level of sexual lust, but that probably is not what John was trying to get at. He probably was really trying to get at greediness. How we use our money, what we do with our money, how we chase after possessions and material things. And so John says, anytime that sort of way of life is in you and that's what you're operating, anytime you're operating with this like lust of the eyes, just taking whatever you see, whenever you want, however, that's a way you love the world, okay? Okay, final phrase. The final phrase that John uses here to, to help us understand this love of the world is uh, this pride of life. Pride of life. Uh, and so the idea of the pride of life is like having this inward bent due to the pride you have in yourself. You, and, and the reason it's linked to possessions is because this pride of life phrase probably was like the, the stereotypical person that, that John was aiming this at. It was like someone who's like, I have provided myself with all I need. I've, I have all I need. And that person gets this arrogant attitude and pride thinking they don't really need God or anybody else. If they're going to be really fully honest with themselves. They have, they have picked themselves up by, them, by their bootstraps, and they don't need anybody else. They got everything they have because of their hard work and their pride of life. Right? You can kind of see why I prefer this phrase, pride of life, to describe what this is trying to say. And I think you can also see how pride of life, you could probably just say the American way of life a little bit. Because I think a lot of us have that in us. And yet John right here says, don't. When you let the pride of life be what fuels you and controls you and operates you, you love the world. You are loving the world. And so all of those things, all of those things are, are the world. That's how John fleshes out the world. That's how he defines it for us. That, that should actually really help us in understanding what it means to not love the world. When we see these warnings to not love the world, we can see how John uses these three broad phrases to help us understand that uh, a bit more. When you participate in that way of life, pride of life, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, you are loving the world. And when you're loving the world, I think John is warning us, it's hard to love God and neighbor. When that's what you love, you will find yourself loving God and neighbor less. And so John warns us to stay away from that way of doing things. Here's the thing about, about the world, this idea throughout the New Testament that we're warned against. The world is just like easy to slip into. Like it is easier to fall into it. It's something everybody else is usually doing. Right? When you begin to talk about the way of Jesus and say, well, man, I, I want to make this decision because I think it's more virtuous. I think it's more like what Jesus would have me do. You will right away hear naysayers be like, no, nah, come on, over here, man. This is much better. I, I think the, 
Loving the world is so insidious because it's like a lazy river at a swim park. I don't know if you've been at the swim park, you're going up and down the stairs, up and down the stairs all day, and the slides are amazing, but then you get in the lazy river, and you're like, I, I think I'm going to stay. <laughs> it's just, I can just sit here, and I can just float, and I can make my kids deliver me food. Like, if there's like, get me, get me up the stairs, remember? Like, you know, like, I can just do that all day. And look, everybody else is here. It's great. Like, I can just float along, not do very much work. Like, I feel like that's what loving the world is, is like a lot of times. It's like falling into this just easy stream that will just kind of take you over and over. And it's great because you're like, everybody else is here. Everybody else is doing it. No one's, I'm not conflicting with anybody. I think that's what loving the world is like. And I think that's why the biblical authors need to warn us against loving the world. The way of Jesus is not what our worldly bodies want. Not always. The way of Jesus doesn't walk us into greed. The way of Jesus walks us into generosity. Uh, The way of Jesus says, come to him like a child, not a powerful person. Have you ever really come to someone like humbly like a child? It's like so embarrassing. I'd rather come to someone like a powerful person. Like even if I need help, I'm like, hey, I know, I think I know this, but can you help me? No, like there's just something in us that has this pride of life. The way of Jesus says, no, you don't need that. You can come to me like a child. The way of Jesus is so opposite of the way of the world. Loving Jesus is fundamentally going to change how we exist in the world. Loving the world is easy to fall into. It's easy to do. It's what everybody's doing, truly. And so John's warning here is saying, let Jesus determine what you do with your creaturely-centered instincts rather than letting your body determine it. John's warning is saying here, let Jesus determine what you do with your money rather than letting your eyes and your heart determine what you do with it. Jesus' warning here is saying, don't make choices only on what you can see and touch and measure because you need God and he loves you. That's what John's warning here is saying about loving the world. And I think that much that is wrong in the American church today is because of our love for the world. It's funny because the fundamentalists that I grew up around that I keep bringing up, they, they actually love the world too. They just convinced themselves that they didn't because they followed some weird rules about hating things that I think were often actually creational good gifts of God. And then they, because they hated those things, they had such a pride of life in themselves. And so thus they were loving the world the whole time as they thought they were following this command. That's why we have to be warned. Often, even in how we try to follow this command, we do it in a worldly way. And I'm speaking to the American church, and I'm speaking to the four churches I grew up in. And so we need to hear what this warning is actually against. It's not warning against the good creational things that God wants us to enjoy and to participate in, but it is warning us from participating in that system in that system, in that self-centered way of human life that is anti-God and more how Satan would run things. It is warning us against that system. So, where does that leave us? I think this, repent if the Spirit is convicting you right now. If you looked at one of those phrases and you're like, man, maybe I'm loving the world. 
in certain ways right now. Remember, you are secure in God's love. You can turn right back to him. You've been, oh man, my, I've been letting the lust of the flesh determine the direction I go. I just got to turn from that direction, turn to God. That's all, you, like, that's all you have to do. You're fully secure in his love no matter what. If you find yourself loving the world, that, like, that's good. You're waking up to something that John wanted his listeners to wake up to. And God wants us to wake up to because it's in the book. And you get to turn away from that and turn to the loving arms of your father. I think here's the thing about the, the lazy river of the world. I think every time you get out, what you're going to find as you mature in a Christian, you're like, you're like, oh, I still got a foot in there, right? And then you'll pull that foot out in repentance and this foot's in. Like that, that's just kind of how it's going to work. That's how this faith is going to work. You're going to be constantly kind of going, man, I got to turn away from loving the world into loving God. When, when in that phrase, I think it's the last verse in there that we read, where it says that this, the world is passing away. Like, don't love the world because it's passing away. It means that that system and its powers and the evil is what's passing away, not the earth itself. God is going to make the earth itself a new creation. We're going to live here with him forever. He's saying because of the cross and the resurrection, the enemy has been defeated. Sin has been defeated. That worldly way of life has been defeated, and it is passing away each day. So why not now just repent and start to live in, into the way of Jesus instead. So John, he sees so much good in the churches he's around. I see so much good in you guys. I, I, I hope that doesn't sound cheesy and forced. Like, I really do see so much good in you guys. John also sees a need to warn us away from the sickness of the world. I see a need to warn us as well. Don't be condemned by that. Be freed by that. And so church, may we be encouraged the way that God's word wants to encourage us this morning. And may we listen to the warning that God wants to give us this morning as well. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for encouragement and warning. I think really, God, warning is, a, is just as big a form of love to us as encouragement is. Because, God, I think so many of us find ourselves in these messes of life because we've chosen this alluring love of the world, this alluring lazy river. And so, God, help us. Help us climb out. Help us to see that. Help us to see that about ourselves. Help us to hear the warning. Help us to be so secure in your love for us that, that we can. That we can do it without fear. We can do it without, like, traumatizing ourselves, God. So God, we, we love you. We need you to, to be able to hear these encouragements, God, to really let those encouragements seek down deep into our bones. We really need you to do something to our like messed up brains and lives. And then Father, help us to see the warning as well. Help us to hear the warning. Help us not be afraid of the warning. Help us to be honest with ourselves where we need to be honest with ourselves. Jesus, we love you and we need you and we're so thankful for all that you've done through the cross and the resurrection. Amen.